Pastor Xavier Reese asks, Are you serving an idol god or the eternal god? These two gods were carried on carriages and were heavy, a heavy load. They had to be accommodated with sufficiently heavy-duty carts and to be transported. They're useless, worthless. Here's the contrast. The pagans carry their gods. Jehovah carries his people. Which would you rather have? Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. A sharp-witted comedian commented that to an alien observing how people are forced to clean up after their dog in public, it would appear as though the pet was the superior being. By the same token, just as ludicrous is the notion that man would bow to and worship some inanimate idol fabricated from his own hand. But that's just what the Israelites were guilty of throughout the book of Isaiah. Let's join Pastor Xavier now, continuing his Simple Truth series in Isaiah with a study titled, Jehovah, the Only God. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1 through 13. The prophet Isaiah has been dealing with the problem of idolatry and false gods repeatedly through the book. It is a charge to his people, those who have forsaken him, provoked him, those who are trusting in the arms of flesh, not only in the military might of Assyria or Egypt to deliver from Assyria, but their gods. This is inescapable as you go through this second half of Isaiah. The prophet now reveals to us the foolishness of comparing God to any other God by three simple truths in this chapter. Let me read the chapter. And I'll give you those points. Bell bows down. Nebel stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily laden. A burden to the weary beasts. They stooped. They bowed down together. They could not deliver the burden. But have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Israel, or Jacob, and all remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me, from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry, and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag, and weigh silver in the scales. They hire the goldsmith, and he makes a god. They prostrate themselves, yes, they worship. They bear it on their shoulders and carry it and set it in a place, and it stands from its place. It shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him, but from all this trouble. Remember this, and show yourselves as men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. 
I will bring righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. The prophet Isaiah reveals to us the foolishness of comparing God to any other God or gods by three simple truths. And he's using logic here and deductive reasoning. And it's a great argument. Notice first the ironic comparison between the idol gods and the eternal God is first given to us in verse 1 through 4. Then second, the impossible comparison of the eternal God to idol gods in verses 5 through 7. And then he finishes off with the impeccable reputation of the eternal God in comparison to idol gods. And by the time he gets done, these idols are melted down. They're pointed out for what they are, worthless and useless. Let's begin here with his first truth. In verse 1 through 4, the ironic comparison between the idol gods and the eternal God. First, in verse 1, the Babylonian gods had to be carried, he points out. The name of the one god of Babylon was Bel. There were many, but he chooses these two. Bel was equivalent to the Canaanite god Baal, the god of the intellect. Bel, or Belus, was also called Marduk, which means Lord. Now, you will find this if you look into culture, if you come from another country that perhaps you came out of idolatry, that there are many times the same god is called by different names, depending the country it's worshipped in and the way it's worshipped. So, same god can have different names. Marduk was represented as a, a king standing in the back of a sea monster named uh, Tiamat, whom he defeated in Babylonian's creation myth. On ceremonial occasions, he would be led along the processional way from the gate of Ishtar, the goddess of love, past the hanging gardens that we've spoken about, to the main temple area at the center of the city. Bel was often used in compound forms regarding the king's name. You'll see the relationship, Belshazzar. So they tie themselves close to their gods. You remember the, the name that was given to Daniel in Daniel 1.7? His name was uh, given by Nebuchadnezzar. His name was Belteshazzar. And so they saw everything that happened in relationship to their gods. They, they pledged their dependence on him. Now, we are called by the name of our God. We are Christians, Christ-like. We bear the human name of our God. We are not God. We are not like God. We are distinct from the Son of God as sons of God. And there's a big difference. The posture of these gods, notice, is described as bowing and stooping, referring to the sarcasm of the prophet, really sarcasm of God. Literally tottering gods, unable to stand on their own. It's not talking about lowliness and humility, but their ineptness. The prophet has already said that every knee shall bow to Jehovah God in chapter 45, verse 23. The other god is Nebo, or Nabu. Nebo was a son of Bel, 
which means the revealer or speaker. The God of writing, equivalent to the Hebrew word Nabi, meaning prophet. He served the same function as did Hermes for the Greeks and Mercury for the Romans. Now remember, Paul was mistaken as one of these gods in Acts 14. <laughs> they wanted to worship him. Nebel was also thought to be the bearer of the tablets of destiny of the gods. In fact, you get the word hermeneutics, the science of interpretation, from the god Hermes. This is the connection. The temple of Nebo stood at Borshipa, and the temple of Bel was at Babylon. The name of Nebo again, as with Bel, was used for kings in a compound form. Nabopolazar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus. And so these kings saw themselves totally dependent, totally entrusting themselves. The pagans rebuked the Christian. <laughs> if we would lean on God as much as they lean on their useless pagan gods, what would God be able to do with us? The indictment against these two gods was twofold. Verse 1. First, they were lifeless and had to be carried about. These two gods were carried on beasts and cattle to the various places. They had to be lifted up and secured in the beast so as not to fall off. You know, you want to make sure that your god doesn't fall off and his head break off and then you have to glue them back together. These two gods were carried on carriages and a heavy load for the beasts themselves. They had to be accommodated with sufficiently heavy-duty carts and to be transported, whether it was to the feast or whether it was like here in captivity. They're carried off. These two gods were a burden to the very weariness of the beast. It is the gods who are a weight upon the people for their own destruction, not for their help. They had to, in fact, depend on these animals to get them where they wanted to go. Notice, secondly, in verse 2, they were useless to the Babylonians. The two could not deliver the burden of their own weight as they are carried off, and the two could not deliver themselves from going into captivity. Now, that's tragic, because Paul said, listen, I'm in prison. I'm the, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ, not of Rome, but the word of God is now bound. God can't be in prison. God can't be taking the captivity. These gods can. How sad that your God is taken away to captivity. He's locked up. And he can't be released. The implication being that these two gods were not going to deliver them from Babylon. Nor were they going to deliver Babylon from the conquest of Cyrus. They're useless. Worthless, the greatest form of self-deception. Notice, secondly, here in verse 3 and 4, the God of Israel had carried his people. Here's the contrast. The pagans carry their gods. Jehovah carries his people. <laughs> Which would you rather have? 
Verse 3, God calls for an attentive ear from his people and points out that he had carried them in the past. The house of Jacob represents Judah, the southern kingdom. She had been depending on Egypt to deliver her from Assyria. Remember when we first opened up the book? She was identified here as Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver, the conniver in her own strength. The remnant represents the faithful few who would be brought back to the land after the Babylonian captivity. The northern kingdom, as you know, was the house of Israel had gone into captivity in 722 uh, by Assyria. The remnant would be returning uh, after the captivity, after Nebuchadnezzar would take three sieges, 606, 596, and 586, the final one. 70 years. But notice they had been upheld by him from birth, he says. God had given birth to the nation through Abraham back in Genesis 11 and 12, calling him out of the earth, the Chaldees. And God, in a sense, carried them in his womb, if you will, as a mother who gives birth to a child. Hear God to Israel. Now, God is described in many metaphors, including that of a mother. By no means does it say or is it teaching that God is a woman nor is it teaching that he's woman and man. There are many metaphors for God. He's a warrior. He, he's a father. He's a mother. He's a comforter. Uh, he's a friend. Many metaphors. From the foundation of the world and before time was, Jehovah had conceived them in his plan, in his mind. They had been carried from the womb, a time that is not the most favorable for any mother, she gets married, she's a beautiful bride, and then in the process of time, she conceives and her body begins to contort and distort and everything else, and yet she lovingly receives it, accepts it, and cultivates that life. There's no greater image of commitment than a mother to the conception and development of a child. Selflessness. God promised he would carry them in the future also. Notice verse 4. Even until their old age, it will be him, not these gods. Jehovah was committed to his people. This is his steadfast love, the word hesed that is found throughout the scriptures. Steadfast love, commitment, stick to itness. We as parents tell our kids, listen, be careful you hang out. You know, don't be hanging out with them. You know, don't mess your life up. When all you three, four years, all your friends are going to be gone, then where are you going to be? Or people decide to get out of marriage. You know, you're going to be all, what are you going to have at the end? God is saying, listen, everybody will quit on you. I'm going to be there to the end. Now, two times you need to be taken care of completely. When you're born, you're a child until you can stand up on your own two feet. Everything is done for you. And the other one is when you get to be real old and they have to take care of you. Now you want to make sure that between the time you start walking and the time that you can't walk any longer, that you've invested in loving people and people you because they're the ones that are going to be there for you. Very important. One of the saddest commentary in our society is Children who just abandon their parents. And usually it's because parents have abandoned the children. And so it's kind of 
everything coming back home. And most people that die in these old folks' home is not because they're ready to die, it's because no one visits them. They're lonely. As a child needs to be touched, and when he's premature and they encourage the parents to put their hands in that incubator and touch him, it'll help him grow, develop, and be healthy. The same with older people. God made us for fellowship. Jehovah would be the only one who would be there for them in their time of greatest need. Notice he says even to gray hair. He would carry them and deliver them. Jehovah would be compassionate to the age, unlike Babylon. Jehovah would give relief to their burdens and, 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 and take them through the Babylonian captivity, unlike the gods that they were making that could not deliver themselves. Jehovah would deliver them ultimately through Cyrus as he would conquer Babylon and return them to the land, as we saw in chapter 40, verse 25, and 45, 1 through 7 in depth. Praying to these gods, depending on them. Useless. Like the little boy one day that wanted a bike real bad and told his parents, well, I'll pray about it. And so, you know, he's praying, and his birthday's coming up, and he says, oh, I know I'm going to get it. He's ready for it, and give him a shirt. Oh, he's bummed out. And then Christmas is coming up. And so he's, oh, I got to get my bike, my bike. He's getting, no bike. He's just ticked off. Goes upstairs, grabs a statue of Mary, wraps her in the pillowcase, puts her in the drawer, gets on his knee, says, God, if you want to see your mother again, <laughs> how sad that your gods can be hidden from you and stolen. Countless of people throughout the world worship idol gods and believe they can hear and will answer their prayers. This is no joke. In Mexico City at the Villa, in the Catholic Cathedral there, the main principal palace area and everything, people get on their knees and they walk all the way up to the door of the cathedral or up the Villa. By the time they get there, their knees are bleeding and flesh hanging, depending whether they're putting weights on their backs or what to demonstrate their devotion to God so their prayers will be answered. God never intended that, nor does he require that, and yet the church encourages it. In Santiago, Chile, high in the city, in the middle, you have a huge statue of a virgin. As you climb and ascend up these steps, you will see on different steps little uh, devotional shrines in, in thanksgiving to the testimony that God answered their prayer. The virgin answered their prayer and God healed and everything. When you get to the very top, you have a huge shrine all over. This is common throughout Mexico, Central, South America, the Philippines. They're serious. They're sincere. They're sincerely, seriously deceived. In all Latin-speaking countries, the religious festivals are initiated with processions of religious relics, statues, be it Mary, Jesus, or whoever may be, other saints, and they're carried from the church to the processional side, the festivity, or whatever may be. It's no different than the days of Isaiah. Same thing goes on today. The custom of kissing the statue is common. You kiss the saint. That's why in Psalm 2 he says, listen, 
the Lord's coming back and he'll laugh at them from heaven, he'll have them derision. He says, now kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. You want to kiss somebody, kiss the son, not the statue. So much so that in, in there in St. Petersburg, when you go to the statue of Peter, his toes worn off. So many lips have kissed him. The devotion, adoration, and veneration of these idol gods is evident by the lavishness of the material that is used to make their gods. Silver, gold, bronze. It's no expense to spare. Paul declares this about idolatry. Listen, to every generation, no exception. Listen to Romans 1, 18-23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness or ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifested in them. For God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made and his eternal power in Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew God keep that in mind they knew God they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. When they knew God, they didn't want to retain him as God. When? Back in the creation, Adam, the record was passed down to his children, his children's children, Babylon, the Tower of Babel, Genesis, distortion. Every generation made a decision from then on to continue that distortion or to examine it and reject it. Every generation willfully rejects it and embraces the deception. No excuse. Man from conscience, from creation, from history is without excuse. He's guilty before God, let alone the special revelation of his son. It is ironic to make any comparison between the idol gods and the eternal God. It's dumb. And notice, secondly, verse 5 through 7. The second truth he gives us is the impossible comparison of the eternal God by idol gods. First in verse 5, the thought is contrary to reason. Keep that in mind. It's contrary to reason. The impossibility is made clear by three personal questions. To whom would you liken me? The prophet has declared this before in 418 and 425. The question is, what will you make me look like? <laughs> and so man sees himself and he says, well, he must have eyes. I have eyes. I have hands. I put hands on him, feet and everything. And he makes an extension of himself and he calls it God. Second, to what will you make me equal to? The prophet has also declared this before, but qualified it with the phrase, the Holy One of Israel in 4025. A repeated phrase throughout, the Holy One of Israel. So in other words, the question itself begs the answer. In other words, everything is unholy and marred in this world due to the fact of the fall. Nothing is pure in and of itself. So you've got a problem from the beginning. The question could very well be, who is my competitor? Who can keep up with me? Third question, to whom will you compare me? The God of Israel has repeatedly declared throughout Isaiah that there is no God besides him. He will say it again down in verse 9. The question here might well be, who is my twin? The answer is no. I'm the only one, one of a kind. 
Pastor Xavier Reese, putting true perspective on idol gods and the eternal God of the Bible, and some very straightforward, simple truths from the book of Isaiah. Now, there's much more to come from this study of the 46th chapter titled Jehovah, the Only God, coming up next time. But for those who wish to obtain a copy of their own containing even more material than we have time to feature on the air, it's available on CD for only $4. And this is a great way to share this ministry with your friends and loved ones. So once again, the title to ask for is Jehovah, the Only God, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And it's helpful when you mention the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us with our stewardship of this outreach. It's easy to see that worship of the creature rather than the Creator might be as common today as ever. Join us for an idol check next time on Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com